Hello, and welcome to episode number 73 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacadamian. As many of you may know, I recently had the opportunity to make a presentation at a very unique and powerful conference held in the heart of Manhattan titled An Inquiry into Anomalous Experiences and the Phenomenon. The event turned out to be a smashing success, both in terms of the inspiring quality of the presentations being made by a group of speakers that included yours truly, Gary Nolan, Mitch Horowitz, Tim Grieve Carlson, and Sean Esborn Hargens. But also, just as, if not more importantly, in terms of linking together a group of passionate researchers, experiencers, and enthusiasts from all around the world. That feeling of a cosmic family coming together was palpable throughout. The organizers of the event, James Iandoli of Engaging the Phenomenon and J. Christopher King of the Experiencers Group, both good friends of mine, did a wonderful job in planning for and executing this unique event. In the end, I would say the event came off without a hitch. A great time was had by all, and even more inspiringly, there was already a second event planned for December and rumblings of other events of a similar nature to be held in places all across the country and indeed overseas as well. I think this is exactly what many of us involved in the conference were hoping would happen, that this would be the catalyst for a movement rather than just the hosting of a one-off event. Speaking of my presentation at last weekend's event in New York City, the event organizers have been kind enough to make the audio content of my presentation available so I can now share it with all of you, my regular audience on Point of Convergence. Much of the material will be familiar to many of you based on previous podcast episodes. That said, this probably marks the occasion when I put it all together in the most comprehensive, overarching way yet, in terms of the implications for the ultimate nature of reality. And with that said, let's get to it. Here is the audio from my presentation at the An Inquiry into Anomalous Experiences and the Phenomenon Conference held last week in Manhattan for this, the 73rd episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. So first thing I'd like to say is what we colloquially call the UFO phenomenon, I actually see as an amalgam of different kinds of groups and different kinds of phenomena. So while some people tend to want to say this is one thing and perhaps it's a uh, just manifesting differently. That's been a common thinking about this. Uh, I see it as likely different groups um, with different agendas, sometimes even groups that are quite similar, but still have different agendas. Just like human beings, there's this complexity there and di quite different origin sources as well, I would say. Uh, so that really opens up the aperture, you know, between ET, interdimensional, uh, extra-tempestrial, um, crypto-terrestrial, ultra-terrestrial, it goes on and on. But I think also those terms sort of fit with how we understand reality right now. And I think a lot of the times uh, this will collapse and transcend into something deeper that kind of uh, und undoes some of our conventional thinking about what might be going on. Another thing I'd say too is that I think one thing this, this phenomenon does is it teaches us how little we understand about reality. That there are some people who are pretty confident that we understand what reality is. And this is sort of, we're just looking for the cherry on top to understand the UFO phenomenon and anomalous phenomena in general. But I think that's actually not the case. I think when we have that 
bias that we are almost there. We tend to think there's probably just one more thing we need to tweak in the model, whereas I think it's actually much more deep-seated than that and multifaceted and may actually end up reworking our entire understanding of reality. Another thing I'd say about uh, the way we talk about the phenomenon and UFOs is that because it's not recognized as a conventional sort of field of inquiry, what ends up happening is you have a lot of armchair enthusiasts who uh, adopt their favorite paradigm, uh, their favorite hypothesis about what this is about, which is fine. And that's fun. And like Kelly said, I think that the questions are fascinating. And to me, I just enjoy the, the adventure, the grand mystery that we're all trying to solve. Um, but that said, I think one of the challenges with the fact that this is an armchair enthusiast kind of endeavor is that we we don't have any kind of mathematical precision about how we talk about these things. And so what ends up happening is that human bias, which is inevitable, uh, ends up filtering in. And so people tend to just adopt whatever hypothesis they prefer to be the case. Uh, and that's one of the things that's great about science. And I'm very pro-science, even though I recognize some of the conventional thinking with, with metaphysics, uh, the assumptions don't go far enough. But at least with science, you have precision. So you can actually make predictions. You can follow through, see if that comes through or not to, uh, to justify your hypothesis, to confirm your hypothesis, or to perhaps open up new avenues of uh, inquiry. Another thing I would say is that, and again, I'm saying this knowing that there's probably quite a few experiencers here in the group. I myself am an experiencer, and I know that I have a very solid sort of left brain critical uh, mind in terms of thinking about these matters. But I know that personally, when you've had experiences, it completely changes things beyond the hypothetical. So I would say that experience for testimony is really essential for this topic. And if you notice the mainstream media uh, coverage of this topic, what you'll find really, really lacking is there's no discussion of that. Uh, you'll see the same, you know, Nimitz videos and whatnot, Tic Tacs and whatnot, discussed ad nauseum, and you'll see those same few clips over and over again in all sorts of different news media. But no one's actually going out and trying to interview experiencers. That happens to some degree on podcasts and whatnot amongst those who are kind of hardcore followers of this topic. But in the mainstream media, it's still not discussed. But I would say that of that, the thing is when you're looking just that what you can see in the sky, that's exciting and everything. And you have kind of the spectacle of that, but that doesn't tell you who it is and why they're here. And with experience for testimony, that's exactly what we get. And what's very, very interesting is how much overlap there is between experience for accounts, even cross-culturally and over time. So this says there's something really going on there and messages that I think we should pay attention to. So I would say that that's a really important key that we need to pay attention to experience for accounts. That's perhaps our most important data set at this point. Another thing I would say is that um, this is a pretty comprehensive topic. Some people want to reduce it to UFOs and aliens, but Kelly said, I, I look at it in a more multifaceted way. There's UFOs, there's aliens, there's other kinds of non-human intelligence. There's near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences. You know, psi phenomena, telekinesis, telepathy, precognition, all of this factors in. And what's very interesting that makes you go, hmm, what's that about? What we also see in the data, and this was confirmed in the free study that was done a few years ago, is if you've experienced any one of those phenomena I just mentioned, 
you're much more likely than an average person from the population to experience others as well, which begs the question, is there something about these people from birth that makes them innately sort of pre-wired to have these kind of experiences? Or did one experience open something or maybe even flip a switch that's dormant in all of us that made us uh, made these people more open to having these experiences again? Uh, another topic I wanted to quickly address was why it is that we have these alien groups supposedly encountering um, and giving messages to just random people. So they're not showing up to famous people. They're not showing up to presidents and prime ministers, famous scientists. They tend to show up to your average person. It could be anywhere around the world. And they usually impress upon these people that you really need to get the message out, which, which begs the question, if your agenda is to get the message out, why are you focusing on these people that no one knows? And they themselves say, why me? Like, nobody knows me. What am I going to do? I mean, I can maybe write a book and put it on Amazon and maybe 10 people will buy it. But how is that going to move this forward? And I've thought a lot about that. And uh, one of the things I try to do in, in, in looking into this phenomena is pull in other data sets from elsewhere, other research that's being done and see how does it apply here. And, and Rupert Sheldrake's done some really interesting research where he's seen in what he calls morphogenetic fields, where uh, certain kinds of inheritance happen even without genetics. So for instance, what happened was there was a group of rats that were, I think were in the UK, somewhere in Europe, and they were trained on this maze. And they learned to do the maze better and better until they actually became pretty proficient at it. Now, what's interesting is they then went to, went to Australia and had a different group of rats that obviously were not related to that first group of rats. And they actually learned the maze more quickly than the group in the UK, much more quickly, as if they were accessing some sort of collective unconscious, that the, there's some sort of memory bank that a species can pull from. And Carl Jung talked about this as well in terms of the collective unconscious. And so I'm suggesting that perhaps, even why on the superficially it looks like, What's really happening when they go and you know, contact random people? What difference is that going to make? What that does is it seeds in our collective unconscious this deep-seated knowledge about these others in our midst. And then slowly more and more of us can pull from that collective memory. Now, if any of you have studied the, the phenomenon in any detail, you'll have come across the figure of Jacques Vallée. He's my favorite researcher uh, because he has been a trailblazer and he was always sort of ahead of the curve. And so he began believing in the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but moved beyond that pretty quickly based on data and based on on the ground research that he was doing. Uh, so as we quickly go through sort of the history of ufology in the 20th century going into the 21st century, it very much follows the thinking and the progression of Jacques Vallée who uh, really steered the, the charge, even though a lot of people were behind him. And sometimes it was 10 or 20 years later that people kind of caught up. When he first brought to people's attention through Passport to Magonia and books like that, that some of this mirrors interactions that were being had with non-human intelligence going way back into history, pretty much as long as humankind has been around, many people, especially in ufology, uh, dismissed that and said, listen, we're talking about UFOs and aliens. Don't talk about the Fae, you know, or fairy lore, or that kind of thing. It's a different thing. 
But Valet just looked at it objectively and said the data looks very, very similar, especially once you get beyond this superficial level, maybe the way that the culture was describing it in a certain way using certain vocabulary, but underlyingly, it's very, very similar. So when we began with the ETH, it's very much because that was the final frontier. So I think now we have more understanding when you think about multiple dimensions and whatnot, that there could be other ways that these, these beings could be coming into our midst. But back in the 20th century, early to mid part of the 20th century, if you think about it, that was really the only frontier we assumed we had not chartered yet. So when craft showed up in the sky or what looked like craft, sometimes it's more like phenomena, like light phenomena. But when that showed up in the sky, people assumed that this has got to be aliens from Venus or Mars. That was the initial thinking. And then eventually that sort of went out further and further into the cosmos once we recognized via probes and whatnot that we had sent to these planets, that they seemed largely barren and lifeless. But initially that was the ETH, was the sense that it makes sense if there's these others, they're non-human. We're seeing craft that are so sophisticated that they can't be the product of any nation state, that the assumption was they must be extraterrestrial. But we do not stop there, as we will soon find out. Now, another part of the experiencer accounts that is tricky, and I think it's going to be tricky for quite some time in terms of the conventional narrative or the conventional mainstream media accepting it, your, your neighbors accepting it that are not into this kind of thing, is how these experiences often seem to happen in an altered state of consciousness or an alternate realm, which leads some people to say, well, then is it really real at all? Are these people just delusional or is it any different than a dream? I think what the evidence suggests is that reality is much more complex than we think. And it's our bias and our prejudice that makes us think that our normal waking state is the only thing that should count as reality. So while these are happening often in an altered state of consciousness or alternate realms, that doesn't mean they're any less real. And as I was talking to a friend yesterday, there are times where people are experiencing abductions or contact where they are on board a craft and their body is physically gone, right? And their spouse or something or a family member can, can confirm after the fact that they were no longer in their bed. So their entire body was taken. Other times they'll be sort of laying dormant and the person can't wake them up, the next morning they have all the signs of having been abducted. In those cases, often it's just their consciousness that was taken, not their actual body. So again, you can see how for the mainstream, that's going to be very, very difficult to reconcile. Now, when we think back to JLN Hynek and Jacques Vallée and people like that, they quickly moved beyond the ETH, as I said. And this was basically because of the data. And again, to Jacques Vallée's credit, that's what he tends to do. He looks at the data, opens the aperture, tries to consider historical data, other kinds of data with anomalous phenomena, and say, how can it be related? What assumptions are we making about this being aliens and UFOs that makes us miss the mark? And what I would also say is that our notions of what, what this is, what this could be, has very much been in lockstep with our understanding of what, what the possibilities are coming out of physics and whatnot. So when we had the notion of the multiverse come out in the 20th century, this idea that because of quantum states and whatnot, uh, you have multiple universes being born all the time, but we're still within a physical reality. You just have multiple universes within a multiverse. 
then the notion was, well, maybe that explains what's going on with these UFOs and these aliens. Uh, and that's partly because they tend to just pop into our existence and then pop back out. We don't often hear cases where they say, you know, from Saturn, we spotted a mothership and it's coming all the way to Earth. And now it's, you know, it's orbiting the moon or orbiting the Earth or something. And they're sending scout craft down to the Earth. We don't usually hear that, which is kind of what you would expect from the standard sort of sci-fi understanding of what an extraterrestrial group would be doing. Instead, we have groups that can either just pop into the sky and we're not even sure if what we're seeing is a techno signature that's the leftover residue of what's actually going on there because space-time itself gets distorted. They can do that and they just pop out again just as easily. They can also pop into your bedroom and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Locks and walls and putting troops outside wouldn't make any difference. They can just put the troops to sleep if they need to. Another part of the, and I'm going to get to in a second, how we can make sense of all this, how we might be able to, because I think there's actually some some evidence coming out of different fields of inquiry outside of this phenomena that give us some clues. But another thing we have to take into account is the, the absurdity and the weirdness that is associated with this phenomena. Um, I already mentioned how we get the space-time distortions. You know, there's, there's situations where, I think even for the kids in Zimbabwe this happened, where you have beings that seem to walk across the field and sometimes they don't even not quite on the ground they're floating just above but there was one point where they reported they saw them sort of walking across and they jumped back and were walking across again almost like we're having some sort of distortion of space time and that's that's rendering really strangely for us and that part will all come back to again and again because how things render as opposed to how they actually are is pretty pretty essential Another thing they can do is, is send telepathic commands, which makes it pretty much impossible for us to resist. That's not always to say that that's a bad thing. I think some people, as soon as they hear that, they say, well, this must be evil aliens and they're just trying to control us. And this is all sort of a setup for some sort of invasion or something, which I think is kind of silly. If they were going to invade, they could have done that long ago and, and pretty simply based on their technological advantage. But they can say to people that are driving along the highway, Okay, turn into the woods here, drive you know, through that field, and uh, then they'll just get up on a craft. And as a, a recent case that I studied on, on Point of Convergence and talked about, people will just hear in their heads, walk into the second room on the right and get up on the table, <laughs> and then there's going to be some sort of examination. And when, when someone who's giving them a hypnotic regression says, why are you doing that? Why are you walking into that room and getting on the table? They're just as surprised as the, as the regressionists saying, I don't know, I'm just getting up on the table. Oh, because they told me, that's why. What do they look like? I don't know, I haven't seen them yet, right? That sometimes happens. And we see a swift shift in terms of mood as well. So they can control our mood. If they sense that we're getting overwhelmed, they can quickly calm us down, that kind of thing. And I just want to, again, reiterate, because I say this a lot as a disclaimer on point of convergence, that again, I think there's multiple groups. So I'm sort of speaking in broad strokes here, partly in the interest of time, but to just remember that. So I'm not saying there's one phenomenon and one group. I'm just talking about some broad strokes that we tend to see. Now, some people think about the criteria, what we see, what the phenomena tends to show up as. And again, along this line of as we've developed technologically and we've developed new notions of reality and physics and whatnot, we tend to follow that. Whatever our latest thing is, we go, ah, must be that. That's what they are. So with the advent of virtual reality, suddenly people started saying, 
aha, that's what they must be. They must be virtual reality displays. And I think we have to be very, very careful of that. It's highly unlikely that whatever just happens to be our latest technological innovation is the answer. That seems very unlikely. And some of these groups based on the age of the cosmos might've been around for millions or billions of years longer than us. So the chances, when you think about it, of it just lining up with our latest innovation is not very likely. So for instance, some people will say, well, we see shape-shifting in the sky sometimes. So that suggests to me that they're actually not really there. These craft are more like virtual reality displays, like holograms that are being shown in the sky. And perhaps they even beam it into the minds of experiencers because you could have three people. One person will see it. Maybe even two people will see it. And the other person will not see it, right? But I don't think it's that simple either, as complex as that is, that they can already beam virtual reality displays into our minds or into the individual minds of certain people. I don't think that even goes far enough. In the case of Dorothy Isaac, she would use a certain video camera and be able to film stuff in the sky that was going on. She would hand it to someone else. They would use that video camera and they could not capture the same thing with the same video camera. So that again shows you it's not even just in the mind. It's almost like a kind of entanglement with that person. But as I carry on here, I'll say I don't think even entanglement fully gets to it because that's sort of, again, our latest understanding. And I think even cutting edge physics goes beyond that. So as we think about this, we think about we went from the extraterrestrial hypothesis to the interdimensional hypothesis, right? Which again, followed this trend in physics when we had the idea of a multiverse and multiple universes existing within the multiverse, we thought perhaps that's what's going on. They're just popping in and popping out of our existence and that explains it. But it doesn't really explain it because that's still the notion of a physical reality, still space-time, and it doesn't explain all the other things we talked about, the way that they can control our consciousness, the way they can control our moods, the way they can control our memory, right? Green memories are a huge part of what goes on here. Again, some people are very suspicious of that. But as I pointed out on a recent episode, sometimes they do that because we respond with abject terror when we see what they actually look like. So while we are frustrated, again, speaking of broad strokes, with some of the ways they treat us and maybe don't tell us the full story, on the other hand, sometimes we do respond like frightened animals. That's not to put us down. Uh, it's a very shocking event. One thing that's really clear in this is even if you end up having, over time, a positive view of an experience, if you're a lifelong abductee or contactee, and what term you use tends to depend on your, your view of it, but over time, once the ontological shock fades a little bit, often people will see the experience as transformative and it opens up their minds about the universe, about who they are even. And, and this is another really key element, I think, in this phenomenon is that who we are is much more complex than we, we give it credit for. So again, sometimes even the questions we choose to ask uh, limit what the possibilities are right from the get-go. And I don't think we can talk about this phenomenon without talking about who we are as well. As you all know, I'm sure one of the, the narratives that comes up quite often is that people have signed soul contracts in previous lifetimes, and that's why they are being contacted. Again, I understand all the complexity around that, and some people will say that sounds like Stockholm Syndrome and just sort of making up for these abductees' experiences, and maybe it's their way of trying to you know, sugarcoat what's going on. But I think that is part of it. It is complex. 
It isn't to say that the the Greys or whatever get a get out of jail free card because of that. That's the case. It's still complex. It may be that they just don't understand human nature well enough. I think some of them have kind of a non-dual understanding of reality, so that when they encounter us, we're very finite and individually focused. They don't expect that response. Now, again, you might say they should learn this lesson over time, seeing how we respond, and that's a fair point. So the question is, with all the, the data we just talked about, with moving beyond the ETH, moving beyond the, the IDH as well, I think the interdimensional hypothesis still doesn't get us there. It answers some of the questions potentially, but not all of them. So the question is, are there other developments and other fields of inquiry in science that could give us clues as to what's going on beyond these hypotheses that have been proposed so far? And I think there are. I want to uh, read a quote from Andre Linde, who is a uh, professor of physics at Stanford, who says this, and I want you to listen closely because a lot of this comes down to our assumptions about reality. He says, quote, let us remember that our knowledge of the world begins not with matter, but with perceptions. Later, we find out that our perceptions obey some laws. Our perceptions obey some laws. A model of a material world obeying laws is so successful that we soon forget about our starting point. So his point there is that we have perceptions and we can make an abstract argument about there being a physical world, a material world apart from our perceptions, but that's an abstraction. There's nothing in science that could determine that's the case at that point. And I now want to read a quote from Bernardo Kastrup, who's a Dutch philosopher who has a background as a physicalist. Uh, he actually worked at CERN on the Large Hadron Collider. So he began sort of at the heart of physicalism. But as he began to work on AI, he recognized that our notion of consciousness was, was off base and you couldn't actually produce AI with computers. And he moved towards a metaphysical position like idealism instead of physicalism. And he says this, quote, because all knowledge resides in consciousness, we cannot know what is supposedly outside consciousness. We can only infer it through our capacity for abstraction. Again, it is enough that we find one coherent explanation for reality on the basis of excitations of consciousness alone for a postulated universe outside consciousness to become akin to the flying spaghetti monster. He's kind of making the point there that you can make that abstraction and say, from our conscious awareness, from our conscious experience, we can say there's a material world apart from our conscious experience of it. But there's no more evidence for that than there is of the flying spaghetti monster, is his point. But again, often what happens is if we all share the same reality, right, regardless of what this reality is ultimately composed of, when we share the same reality and I knock my fist on this table and it makes a sound and I can feel it in my knuckle, we assume that means that's real and that's apart from who I am. Now, this is what really matters is it comes down to what physics can actually tell us. And physics is not in the business of telling us what nature is. It's in the business of telling us how nature behaves. It makes powerful predictions about the behavior of nature by modeling it that have allowed us to transform our civilization, giving us refrigerators, cell phones, and robot rovers on Mars. 
Now, reductionistic materialism makes massive metaphysical assumptions, but often because it still enjoys the role of being the dominant paradigm, these assumptions are excused or forgotten altogether. Again, much like religious dogma in previous human eras. So when you think back uh, to when the church kind of ruled the land in the time of Christendom, the worldview was Christ-centered kind of perspective theologically, and just in terms of society. There was a marriage between church and state, and for a long, long time, it wasn't even questioned. It was just assumed that was the case. Now, I've often talked about on the podcast, we tend to pendulum swing as a culture, as a civilization. So we went from that to saying, all of that stuff is gobbledygook. You know, there is no subjective spiritual realm. There's nothing like that. All we have is hard matter. And we're just going to reject all the rest and, and now move into this new domain. And because we've transformed our civilization, when you think about in the last hundred years, going from horse and buggies to having spacecraft and whatnot, and the internet and all the things we have, the, the marvels of the modern world, we have given to these scientists and these assumptions, these metaphysical assumptions, the benefit of the doubt. We've assumed that if they can, if they have been able to transform our civilization, they must know what they're talking about. But sometimes when you actually talk to a physicalist or someone who actually adopts physicalism without really being aware of it, they don't even know how to defend it really. And they aren't even aware of some of the challenges that physicalism is coming under. And I would say that it's very clear there's a lot of challenges to it, to the point where it's actually not tenable at all, which again, opens up all sorts of questions. Now, I made a tweet on Twitter about this kind of topic uh, recently, where I said, the term woo is usually used in a pejorative way to describe notions that are speculative and untestable. Eventually, notions within physicalism will be considered woo because it will be widely understood that it is they that rely on untestable abstractions. Now, I've already mentioned Bernardo Kastrup, and now I want to talk about Donald Hoffman. And as it turns out, there are several theorists in different fields of inquiry that have come to similar positions, even though they work in different disciplines. And that's particularly interesting. Donald Hoffman, for those of you who don't know, is a professor at the University of California, Irvine. And Hoffman argues that natural selection is necessarily directed towards fitness payoffs and that organisms develop internal models of reality that increase these fitness payoffs. This means that organisms develop a perception of the world that is directed towards fitness and not reality. He says, quote, indeed, there is no need to posit any physical object or a space-time that exists when no one observes. Space and time themselves are simply the format of our interface, and physical objects are icons that we create on the fly. Now, we all have seen optical illusions and have been amazed by how our brain doesn't seem to get the trick, right? We can look at something and we can look at a, a cube depicted on a flat piece of paper and say, that's so weird. My brain thinks it's a cube no matter what I try. If I try not to see it, I can't. And there's even some situations where you can look at a cube and it looks like a certain angle. You look away and you look back and your brain re-renders the cube and you see it differently on the page than you did before. What Hoffman is saying is that we're doing that all the time. We're doing it right now here. 
that all of this is just an interface that we're rendering on the fly. We do it so quickly and so seamlessly that we convince ourselves that we're actually seeing a reality there. Uh, right now, he would argue, for me, there's nothing behind my head. It's only when I look that it actually renders. That's the point. So the takeaway here is that it misses the point to question whether or not experience or accounts are really real when the very arena we live within in our daily waking lives is according to this hypothesis, backed by mathematical theorems no less, suggests that what we experience as reality is actually better described as an abstraction, as nothing more than a virtual reality. Now there is evidence from evolutionary game theory that demonstrates this. Basically what you can do is you can run these simulations and you can say, okay, take a hundred organisms and let some of them see reality as it really is, whereas let other ones develop shortcuts, icons, like a folder on your desktop, on your computer, and which ones will survive because it's a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of world in evolution. And what happens is every single time you run that simulation, those that see more of reality will be driven quickly, swiftly to extinction. So de facto, because of that, all of us that are in this room today have ancestors who developed the shortcuts, who developed the icons in the interface, and that that's what we actually see of reality. Physical reality looks nothing like that screen. Physical reality looks nothing like this shirt. My brain doesn't really exist. That's just the way it manifests for us. When you look at a brain scan, for instance, the notion is that's a correlation of something really going on reality, but the brain itself is just what we see. It's what we render. Now, we do see a correlation again. If you poke my brain, you might see things in the scan that show you you're doing damage, and I may experience that damage. So there's a, there's a correlation there, but causation is the issue. So I want to read another quote from Hoffman. Physics and evolution point to the same conclusion. Space-time and objects are not foundational. Something else is more fundamental, and space-time emerges from it. So this is key. And I now want to bring in a couple other examples from other fields of inquiry, neuroscience specifically, and physics. Now, Nima Arkani Hamed is a teacher at Princeton, New Jersey, and he's done some remarkable work on cutting-edge physics and looking beyond space-time. And you can actually take the entire semester course from his physics class. And I actually did that because I really wanted to wrap my head around this. And this is what he says about space-time. This is not someone who's interested in the UFO phenomenon. I have no idea if he's interested at all. He's not interested in anomalous phenomena of any kind or ghosts or anything, near-death experiences. He's talking about as a, just a hardline physicist, this is what he sees. He says, quote, space-time is doomed. There is no such thing as space-time fundamentally in the underlying description of the law of physics. Now, what he's getting at here is that we might experience an approximation that we call space-time, but it's a projection of some deeper structure of reality. And for those people who want to say, well, just let's, let's rely on quantum states then, that doesn't work either. His point is that there must be a deeper structure from which both quantum theory and space-time emerge. So already when we think about the others and the way they're able to manipulate our reality, which again is more like a, a projection, right? Space and time is a projection. 
They are working on the source code behind space-time. They, again, could be millions or billions of years more advanced than us. If we already, with our cutting-edge physics, are recognizing that there's a structure deeper than that, then it's not surprising that they would get that as well. So reality is not spatial-temporal at all. That's the implication here. Again, that's just what we experience. Einstein said, time and space are modes by which we think and not conditions in which we live. Now, one of the classes I really enjoyed when I was studying psychology was neurolinguistics. And this talks about how we use ways we think to develop our language. And then our language determines the ways we can think. And so there's challenges even with our notion of space-time because we formed our language around it. So we talk about things like space and time as if they're absolute when they're not. And so you'll have people postulate questions like, what happened before the Big Bang? And the point is, that's an incoherent question, actually. We have no notion of what time is before the Big Bang. So to ask the question makes no sense from a physics point of view. But again, our language doesn't prevent us from asking that. Now, Hoffman is actually fairly confident that we will be able to contact intelligences beyond space-time, which, again, is more like our interface. Because what he says is when you think about the Fermi paradox, right? which was put forth to explain or, or postulate why is it that with our notion of there being so many galaxies in an immense, vast cosmos, and even if most planets are not capable of sustaining life, there should be plenty of Goldilocks planets, even if they're the exception to the rule for life to be everywhere. And because certain planets have been around for much longer than others, you know, civilizations should have been developed by now much more than ours. Why are we not finding them? And what Hoffman is saying is that it's because we're looking in precisely the wrong place. Space-time, again, is our interface, served up by the process of evolution, and that's not where we're going to find them. But he does believe that if we can poke through, sort of bust through that interface, we will find that reality is teeming with life. We've just been looking in the wrong place. So what I'm suggesting here, along the same lines of people like Hoffman, Bernardo Kastrup, and Nima Arkani-Hamed, is that reality is more like an interplay of fields of mentation that you have at the root of reality kind of mind stuff, that it, you knock on it, it feels real. I don't know about you, but I've had experiences in lucid dreams where I've had extremely vivid lucid dreams where I've been able to actually get down on the ground and smell a blade of grass and it smells completely real. I remember talking to someone that seemed familiar, though when I woke up, I have no idea who they were, but I went up and I rubbed my hand against this red brick building and I felt tearing on my skin. So the granularity of that experience told me that this was no different than our waking experience. And just because it's consistent in terms of rendering physicality doesn't mean it's ultimately real. All right, so just to close now with a couple thoughts, the way forward in terms of field research, I think, again, evolution has served up this default mode that we usually walk around in. I'm suggesting there's actually some other ways beyond just external technology where we can sort of punch through that interface. Uh, meditation is one, lucid dreaming, astral projection, psychedelic journeys. And even with CE5 and HICE, human-initiated contact experiences, even there, meditation is a key point. 
And what's very interesting is when you listen to some of the historical documents, they'll say that some experiencers who had a lot of contact were actually basically taught or encouraged to learn meditation protocols as teenagers or adolescents. So it's as if these others know that this is a way for us to punch through our usual default mode and tap into larger reality. And some of these prime experiences were actually encouraged uh, in these ways when they were young. Now I'd like to leave you with this concluding thought. This is a gathering made up of not just experiencers and their supporters, but also pioneers. Some of us are pioneers by choice, others seemingly by happenstance. Regardless, we, as pioneers, are often presently seen as out of touch with reality, accused of believing in fantastical, counterfactual notions. But I would remind us all that this is always the case for pioneers. This is always the way they are seen, just prior to a sea change in understanding. And to be clear, that sea change is coming. As we've just outlined, the evidence is already in arising from independent but converging lines and fields of inquiry. Fields of inquiry that align with but stand distinct from what many of us have seen and experienced in what we colloquially call the phenomenon. And on that note, I'll leave you with a famous quote by German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, who said that, quote, all truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as being self-evident. Thank you very much.